Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shemini uh, this week. Um, we are going to begin at chapter 9, verse 6. <laughs> we are in, we're in Parshat Shemini. We're in um, the, the Parsha that really focuses uh, very heavily on uh, the forbidden and permitted categories of food for Israelites. Um, I'm not going to talk about it because we're not doing it today. We were talking about the commissioning of Aaron and his sons. We talked about the building of the Mishkan because we had already gotten the instructions. Then we have the actual building of the Mishkan. And we have brought to us by Zornberg all of these Midrashim, these wonderful commentaries by the rabbis that are about the fact that everything was done. And then there's this moment where the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is supposed to fill the Mishkan, and it doesn't. So all of these Midrashim that are about this moment of great anxiety. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as well. So remember that. I just want you to remember that. that There was this moment of great tension when everything has been done like they think it's supposed to be done. And then the Shekhinah does not descend. So that moment of great existential worry that the sin of the golden calf had not been completely forgiven. So that's there. That's going to be present in our story this morning. We talked about the commissioning of Aaron means the decommissioning of Moshe. Moshe has been the leader in every significant way for the people. And that will shift now that Aaron will be head of the cult. Aaron will be the head of his cult. It is a hereditary position. So it passes to his sons. Being head of the cult will pass to Aaron's sons. So Moshe and his sons are like not a part of the leadership structure in terms of what was going to be now central for the daily and and monthly and yearly cycles of observance for the Israelites. So we we also looked at Zornberg bringing us Midrashim about Moshe, possibly the rabbis are imagining Moshe's possible anxiety about his position changing, his position vis-a-vis his intimate relationship with God changing because he's no longer the primary, right, leader of the people for everything. Um, and we had these beautiful texts about how God says it's even more special, the relationship I have with you now. And it takes Moshe out of a functionary role and in some ways makes the relationship more intimate. And then we talked about the fact that it's not just a good thing for Aaron and his sons that they become head of the cult, right? It's not only a good thing. It's dangerous. What happens for Aaron and his sons is that they take the risk on themselves now for any kind of encroachment on the sancta. Right. So until this time, there aren't sancta for anyone to encroach upon unless God's coming down on the mountain. Then the people can't touch the mountain. They can't come up all that stuff. Now you have a much bigger thing in the middle of the camp that if there's encroachment involved, there's going to be zappage. And it's now Aaron and his sons and the and the Levites who are going to be responsible and in the line of fire when zappage occurs. So, so it's not just a wonderful position that, oh, now you get to be Pope. It's like, it is a risky position and it is dangerous. So we're going to look this morning at a continuation of that, of both the arc of the anxiety about 
um, what's happening with the Mishkan, as well as the ways that it, it was dangerous for for uh, Aaron and his priests, and in our case uh, this morning, fatally so. So we are going to uh, look, we're going to begin at 9.6, I said, just to give us a lead up into um, what's happening with Nadav and Avi. What's going on? All right. So Moshe says, okay, this is what Yerevave has commanded that you do, that God's kavod may appear to y'all. So presumably God's kavod is going to appear to everybody, right? So the other thing to remember is that this is the eighth day. Remember they were to stand at the opening of the the Petach of the Ohel Moed for seven days and nights, not to move from there for to finish their consecration for their ordination. And when that is over, it is now the eighth day. How many days was creation? Seven. So this is the day past completion. What happens beyond and after completion is day eight. So, um, so that is what's happening. Moshe, uh, Moshe calls to Aaron and his sons and to the elders. All right. And so he says, this is what God has commanded that you do, that the kavod of Adonai, um, shall appear alechem to y'all. So part of the question is who's y'all, right? That, that's a question. All right. And Moses said to Aaron, right? Krav. El Hamizbeach, come close to the Mizbeach. Krav. So you see this Hebrew word where my cursor is, right? Those three letters, Kuf, Resh, Vet. Krav, come close. So this is the verbal form. What is the name of a sacrifice in Hebrew? Korban. These same letters, right? With Anun. Exactly the same. So we've talked about this. So there, the sacrifice is all about coming close, bringing God close, you drawing close to God. You have a meal together. That's the point of offering the sacrifice. You're having a communal meal with God. You're having lunch with God. He says to Aaron, come close to the Mizbeach. But it's the same word used for sacrifice, right? So this getting close and the altar and everything that happens with all of that is not unladen with danger. So come close to the Mizbeach. So and make your sin offering and your Holocaust offering, right? That it may make expiation for yourself and for the people. And make the sacrifice for the people, right? That it should, um, ex, make expiation for them, as God has commanded. All this language, here we get it again. And Aaron comes close to the altar. But, but do you see how close this Hebrew, I <laughs> see what I did there. You see how close this Hebrew is to Aharon being a korban, right? On some level, their lives are forfeit, Aaron and his sons and the Levites, as they serve 
they have put themselves in the place of whom? Who are they standing in for? Huh? Which people? Specifically, which people? Israel. Specifically, which members of Israel are they standing in for? Who are they substituting for? The firstborn. Oh. The firstborn of every fruit tree of the field of Peterechem, that which opens the womb of a living creature, including Israelites. The firstborn belong to God. God takes the Leviim, God takes the tribe of Levi in place of the firstborn, right? They serve now to take on themselves the risk that the firstborn would have taken in serving the cult. Okay. So he comes close, Aaron does to the Mizbeach, and slaughters the Egel Achatat, the calf for the sin offering. It's not lost on us that it's a calf and sinning. That is not lost on any of us, right? You're going to make this place one that God can dwell in. You need to, everybody in front of the eyes of all of Israel, sacrifice a calf. Aaron's sons bring the blood to him. He dips his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, and pours out the rest at the base of the altar. The fat, the kidneys, the protuberance of the liver from the sin offering, he turns into smoke. This is done with all of the sacrifices as uh, as Yudhe Bafe had commanded. And the flesh and the skin were consumed in fire outside the camp. Then he slaughters the burnt offering. So this is the Ola, which is completely burned up. Aaron's sons pass the blood to him. He dashes it against all sides of the altar. Then they pass him the burnt offering in sections as well as the head. And he turns that to smoke on the altar, washing the entrails and legs, turns them to smoke on the altar of the burnt offering. So this is offering after offering after offering to be sure everything is done correctly so that when it's finished, what's going to happen? We just got told at the beginning. Well, God's kavod will appear. God's kavod, God's glory, God's presence. God's significance. No, no. So next he brings the people's offering. He took a goat, slaughters it, presents it as a sin offering like the previous one. He brings the burnt offering and sacrifices it. So the Holocaust and then brought forward the meal offering uh, and does what he's supposed to do with that, turning it to smoke. And he slaughters the ox and the ram, the people's sacrifice of well-being. And Aaron's sons pass him the blood. He dashes against all sides of the altar. And all that stuff that's supposed to be burned up is burned up. And he turns the fat into smoke. Why is the fat turned into smoke? So God can enjoy it. Absolutely. The amazing smell of fat burning right on the barbecue. Um, so, so he elevates the breast and the right thighs as an elevation offering. So all of this is what's got to happen for the kavod of Adonai to uh, appear. So he raises his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he stepped down after offering the sin offering, the burnt offering and the offering of well-being. So Moshe and Aaron then went inside the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the presence of yud heh appeared to the people. Fire came forth from before yud heh and consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar and all the people saw and shouted and fell on their faces. And now Aaron's sons 
Nadav and Avihu, each took his fire pan, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered before Yudhevavhei Esh Zara, literally strange fire, which had not been enjoined upon them. They'd not been commanded to do this. Vatetse Esh Adonai, and fire came forth from before Yudhevavhei, Vatochalotam, and ate them, consumed them, and they died before God. This says at the instance of, I don't like it, Vayamutu Lifne Adonai. They died before Yudhevavhe. And we'll get to why I don't like that translation. Moshe says to Aaron, this is what Yudhevavhe meant by saying, through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain glory before all the people. And Aaron, Vayidom, was silent. It's, it's, it's a verb. So, I don't, so was silent is, is passive. Aaron shut up. Aaron, Aaron, I don't know how you say it. What's a verb in English? Quietened. Vaikra Moshe, and so Moshe calls to Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, so he, he calls, he calls the boys cousins, their first cousins to come Come forward and carry away your achechem, your brothers, meaning your relatives from the sanctuary to a place outside the camp because now they are corpses. Corpses will immediately contaminate the camp. You can't have that. So they have to be taken outside. First of all, this suggests there are corpses, right? If if the body was completely consumed in fire, you would not have a corpse. So what exactly happened? Not sure. So they carried them out by their tunics. So they're dragging them by their tunics. Why? Why can't they touch the body? Because they will be rendered immediately the highest form of impurity possible. So they grabbed them by their tunics there's enough to drag out. So, okay. You know, so what, so we have to go back to, okay, so what is the consuming, right? Okay. And why um, wouldn't the tunic have burned? Why didn't the tunic burn? Moshe said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Itavar, do not bear your heads, do not rend your clothes, lest you die and anger strike the whole community. But your kin, all the house of Israel shall bewail the burning that God has wrought. Meaning you may not mourn. You are still serving. You are not free to engage in all of the rituals that someone in mourning would engage with. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for God's anointing oil is upon you. And they did as Moses had bidden. I'm only going to include this part because it makes headlines in all of the commentaries. God spoke to Aaron saying, right after this incident, we get God speaks to Aaron saying, drink no wine or other intoxicant, you or your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting, that you may not die. This is a law for all time throughout the ages, for you must distinguish between the sacred and the profane and between the pure and the impure. 
The reason I read that to you is because when we go to the rabbis asking the question, what is this? What just happened? Because as much as Torah says, this is where Moses said, see, this is what God meant when it is a completely unhelpful statement. So Moshe's like, okay, see, this is what God meant, meaning this is in some kind of explanation for what just happened. First of all, we don't have that scene. We don't have the scene where where God says to Moshe this quote, and then Moshe now says, see, this is what God meant when God said that. We don't have that scene. So either that's a deleted scene by in the final, uh, you know, cut, like it's on the cutting room floor, or I, we don't know, but we don't, ha- or it's a lost tradition, whatever it is, we don't have it. That's number one. Number two, not exactly clarifying or helpful, right? So, okay, so that there's that. So this is one of the places where the rabbis go to look for what happened. Why did this happen? If immediately following this event, God says to Aaron, you and your sons cannot come in here drunk, what did the rabbis assume? They were drunk. Okay. So that's why I read it to you. That's where it comes from that many of the interpretations say they were drunk. For everything from they were literally drunk to, you know, they were cruising around, oh, get our fire pans. I got not, any, everything from that to drunk with the intoxication of wanting to be in union with the divine. The, the the commentaries range from literally drunk on alcohol to drunk with love of God that has them leave good decision making, right? doesn't really matter. If you're drunk, doesn't matter. If it's because you're so crushed out on this person, if you're a 14-year-old, does it really matter if you're drunk on alcohol or just so intoxicated with this person? Speaking of the 21-year-old who linked documents, right? You know, he was drunk with wanting to impress his friends. And so your frontal lobes go offline and, you know, like that's all that takes over is this, is this intoxication with whatever it is. And, um, and you stop thinking clearly. Um, so that's one interpretation. I'm not going to go through all the interpretations. We've done that before. Maybe we'll do it again some other year when I get some new take on it that makes me happy. But, um, we're not going to go through all of them. We're not going to, we, we did that one year. We argued. We, it was a great session. We argued. Everybody argued about what they thought the actual one was and you had to make your case. So, um, so what we are going to do though is we're going to look at how does this connect to all of this stuff we've been looking at and kind of what, what do we do with this ourselves? But also Zornberg has, she's continuing her line of looking at the Midrashim that are very anxious about what's going to happen or not happen. And it's an interesting take. There are a couple of takes on this that I found this time that I've not seen before. Um, and I, and I've been doing this a long time. And so like, so I'm sharing with you stuff that was fun for me to learn. That was a, a little bit of a new take on what's happening with Nadav and Avihu. All right. So to categorize just quickly, there's the, they were drunk. They did things that they weren't supposed to. They weren't told to. They didn't check with an authority. They didn't, they didn't have enough respect for authority to ask, can we do this? One is that they are wanting to be unified with the divine in a way and they got their wish. They, they got what they wanted. They, they, they were one with the divine flame, if you will. So that it's not only not a punishment, it's actually a reward. Right. So that's kind of the gamut of, of explanations. 
But it was an alien fire. You're going to talk about that a little? Meaning that most people agree it means either a fire that they weren't commanded to bring. And then we're going to look at what one interpretation might mean of Eish Zara. Sorry. Yes. I just have one uh, sort of clarifications about the whole, maybe it's because of all this nonsense that's going on now in Israel with the third temple and the holy space. So there's holy, the holy of holies is a holy space, right? You yes. just don't go in there. The innermost third of the Mishkan. Right. Now with this traveling Mishkan, is there, there's also a concept of a holy space? Is that? The Mishkan is designed exactly the same as the temple. Okay. So how do you have the temple is designed exactly like the Mishkan? I right. But the, but the idea of a holy space, if you're moving, the space keeps changing, which implies it's not the ground that's holy. Oh, oh, it's the, it's the space within the Mishkan. Oh, so you can, any place can be a of holy course. space. So why but once you have, so a, once you on have a temple, oh, that's the place. But you could build It's not a portable anymore. Oh, it's not portable. It's not portable anymore. And the place where God will cause God's name to dwell, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. Okay, so he's renting and then he gets a home. Correct. Okay. God rents, yes. And then God decides to commit and buys a place. Um, when God grants them, so in other words, retrojecting, the vision was never that they it be portable. The vision was it's portable until they inherit the land. Mm. Then it's permanent, but they have to get there. To get there, they have to travel. N- no, no, it never gets portable again. Well, unless you want to have that argument, we could have we could have a whole court case on <laughs> is it portable now or not. So the folks you're talking about. It's absolutely not portable. The still the holiest place is the Holy of Holies in Israel on the, the Temple, Temple Mount, Mount. Period. That's why we have to keep it. That's why every land of piece of the land of Israel is sacred. We don't get to give it away. It was given to us by God. We can't give any of it away. Blah, 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 blah. The rabbis who had to deal with trying to do some kind of practice with no temple anymore, of course, had to come up with the answer. God has always been everywhere. Of course, right? God is within our midst. God is in our communities. God is within each one of us. Each one of us is a Mishka. So for them, it had to be portable or there's no Judaism. There's no possibility for Judaism. They were never mutually exclusive, right? Ancient Israel didn't think God wasn't everywhere, but it was more in Israel, (laughs) right? So, um. Right. So they were never mutually exclusive, but it was always a complicated relationship. And so we have we have the vestiges now of is it portable or not? Just sort of following up on what you said I, or what you asked. I, I was just wondering, since there is no longer a temple in existence, then why do these like Haredi Jews want to sacrifice a goat on the Temple Mount because they don't. Nobody's going to sacrifice anything on the Temple Mount. They They know that fire will come down from the sky and consume everybody. Except for that's what they're trying to do now. No, 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 no. Yes. No. So that is some fringe radical craziness. Okay. Most black hats would say. You cannot even step on the Temple Mount because you might step on the Holy of Holies. Then you're dead. 
or the whole Jewish people will be destroyed. God forbid. You can't absolutely not. That is the fringest of the fringe of the fringe. There is no temple. You cannot sacrifice without a temple. Well, what is their explanation for saying they want to sacrifice? You're even talking about. So I don't know. Oh, you have. It's not normative in any way, shape or form. Because you're not allowed yeah. to sacrifice. Black cats go so far as to not mix frankincense and myrrh. Don't have them near each other. What if you accidentally stumble upon the incense mixture from the temple? You're D-E-D. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, like, the, you know, it's like you can't, you can't monkey with any of this. That's why we don't eat lamb on Passover. Because God forbid someone should think, you slaughtered a lamb thinking this is the Pesach offering. Wow. That's why you eat brisket. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Right? This is why we eat brisket. So it's, so it's, it's completely fringe, completely, I don't know what that somebody is thinking about sacrificing a goat. No idea. That was an accusation that was made by the Palestinians so who That may be it. The, the, what it may be is an accusation by and folks who are anti-Jewish to say they want to sacrifice a goat on the Temple Mount. Because I don't know anybody from the Jewish observant end who would go anywhere near anything like that. Would you mind repeating one more time why we don't eat lamb on Passover? I just had that argument with someone. So that nobody, so that, because if you serve lamb, a roasted lamb for the meal, it could seem, it could look to someone like, oh, this is the Paschal lamb. They, we sacrificed the Paschal lamb and are eating it now because that's what they were commanded to do. So just to be sure, positive, 100%, nobody would think we would even imagine sacrificing without a temple. We serve something that's not lamb. So there should be no confusion. Cow, lamb. Big animal, really small animal. Not furry, furry, right? Like, like just to be super clear. Right. So, right. So I'm not saying that, I'm not saying everybody bought it, but, but, but I know in an Ashkenazi observant tradition, it was you do not serve lamb just in case. Mm -hmm. Well, and well, she obviously doesn't come from, you know, a, a, a tradition that, that recognizes that our old reform rabbi always ate lamb on on passover because he said we're not going back to the temple we're not going right? back to sacrifice yeah so so it's still a thing and and also this goat business you can't even sacrifice from a religious point of view you couldn't even sacrifice a goat until the the temples the messiah comes in the Correct. Temple. so what are the so this is obviously exactly crazy. so it could be an accusation made up like i said i don't know what you're talking about because i haven't heard it a lot of it was disinformation, misinformation that was put out um, by certain sources. It it preceded all this business with, yeah. Yeah, because it makes no sense. I'm really sorry I started this. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Dave. Thanks, David. Thank you. So we just have this whole, this whole business of Moshe and Aaron go inside the tent. When they came out, they blessed the people. The presence of God appeared to the people. Fire came forth from before Yudhe and consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. And all the people saw and shouted and fell on their faces. So this is Zornberg. It seems clear that the fire is identified with the revelation of glory. In consuming the sacrifices, the fire emerging from the Holy of Holies 
testifies to God's acceptance and favor, the grace of God's presence. The people's reaction is Vayaronu, and they sang in exultation. Never before or after this moment do we read of this quality of song in a narrative context. So powerful is their experience that it apparently prostrates them. They collapse onto the ground. This moment mirrors the divine joy of which the Talmud speaks. In human experience, however, it has a cataclysmic quality. The people are completely overwhelmed. All right. So she's pointing to the fact that fire comes out of the Holy of Holies. This is a good thing. Fire, God's great, God's presence appearing has something to do with this fire that goes out. It's a good thing, a sign of God's acceptance, forgiveness, God's grace. It goes out and it consumes the sacrifices. But, but also this appearance of God's kavod to the people causes all of them to collapse. They're singing, but they're collapsing. Right? They're singing and they're plotzing. Sarah, how do you say singing in Yiddish? Singing in Yiddish. They are gazan and plotzing. Gazingen and a plotzen at the same time. Okay? So it's both and. It's like this overwhelming, think of whirling dervishes. You know, think of, you know, getting so, they're so overcome that they fall to the ground and they're singing so it's this incredible mix you see that still in some ultra conservative protestant churches sure i've seen it in in churches right and, and yeah. speaking in tongues and they all do of those exactly of completely there where people are completely overcome all right so she brings rashbam so i went and got you rashbam because zornberg talks about rashbam so i went and got you rashbam rashbam is rashi's grandson all right so <laughs> Rashi's grandson comments on the words, a fire goes out from before God. What does Rashbam suggest? And remember, Rashbam could have picked from any of the other opinions about what this is about. They're drunk. They didn't follow authority. They were wanting to be too. So that's not where he goes. Where Rashbam goes is this fire emanated from the Holy of Holies, traveled via the golden altar in order to burn up the incense, which was always offered before the daily communal burnt offering. If the incense offering comes first, it's on the incense altar. The Holy of Holies, right? To get to the animal altar, it's gonna, that fire he's suggesting consumes first the incense, then the animals. That would make sense. Eat all the offerings, right? Consume all the offerings along the way. And we know this from Yuma 33. This is also where the fire encountered the sons of Aaron beside the altar. Subsequently, this fire moved to the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle and consumed the sacrificial meat, consisting of both burnt offerings and peace offerings. At the time the heavenly fire emanated in order to consume the sacrificial meat on the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, it consumed the two sons of Aaron on its way. This fire had meant to consume only the incense. But seeing that the sons of Aaron had been in its way, it consumed them also 
and they died. So how does Rashbaum make sense of this? Rashbaum is saying, meanwhile, Nadav and Avihu are bringing their incense offering. It is not sequential. While all this other business is going on, while that's happening, Nadav and Avihu bring their incense offering. So they were literally in the line of they fire. Were in the line of fire. Literally. The line of actual fire. Aviva Zornberg. As for the strange fire, Rashbaum, who we just read the original, we read Rashbaum's words, offers a further unusual reading. And, and, and we do get more on it somewhere else from Rashbaum. This fire would have been appropriate on any other day. It was private fire to your question. Eish min hahedyot, which means domestic or regular fire from their own ovens. That would have been fine on any other day, says Rashbam. On this specific day, however, Moses had not commanded the routine procedure since he was praying precisely for divine fire. On this day, they should have waited for the miracle so that God's name would be sanctified when everyone realized that fire had come down from heaven. So Rashbam, this is Rashbam. She's bringing us it from somewhere else. I couldn't find the original Rashbam for, for that part. This is this is an incredible teaching by Zornberg. Listen to this. This is where she's just amazing. She draws from the, these studies that are just like, where does she get this stuff? The tragedy arises from a compulsive drive to normalcy. Do you know people like this? Wait till she goes on to describe this. You know people like this. The two priests cannot tolerate the tension of waiting. They thus lose the opportunity for sanctifying God's name. Going about their priestly business, they are caught in the trajectory of divine fire moving between altars. All the sacrifices to this point have been scrupulously performed, and this in itself inspires the young priests to what we might call, are you ready, my psychoanalytic people, might call a normotic madness. How much do you love this? A no, a normotic madness. The psychoanalyst, I'm telling you, like she's, she reads every, here's the psychoanalyst, Christopher Bolas, who coined the expression, normotic illness is distinctive as a turning outward into concrete objects and toward conventional behavior. The normotic flees from dream life, subjective states of mind, imaginative living, and aggressive differentiated play with the other. We could say that if the psychotic has gone off the deep end, the normotic has gone off the shallow end. In our context, Aaron's sons become, in a sense, intoxicated by the power of ritual, of predictable routines scrupulously followed. Faced with the gap in which, after all the procedures have been immaculately performed, nothing happens, right, which we get all over the Midrash, when everyone is waiting, praying, blessing, the two young priests resort to the local vocabulary of the system. Concrete objects and the human movements that operate them must make the epiphany happen. 
And so, Richard, what, what happened? What, she, what is she saying? Rushbaum says, don't read all of this happened to Kubota. I don't know. I appeared and got and consumed this stuff. And then Nadav and Avi, you brought their fire pants. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, Nadav and Avihu bring their fire pants because they're getting <clears> anxious <throat> that nothing's happening that's supposed to happen. And so they're like, well, we've been commanded about everything to do. So let's, whoever, like, whoever heard of, like, how can there be an incense offering if there's no fire? So let's go get some fire. And they bring their incense offering to try to help move things along. And it, they just happen to be standing there when that consuming fire comes from the Holy of Holies and has to get to the outer courtyard where the sacrifice has been, the animals have been offered. And that's, that has to come through the incense altar, consumes the incense there, consumes them, then consumes the meat. And so Zorenberg's taking Rashbaum's point one step further to say there is a kind of madness that comes from thinking it has to be routine and procedural. And I think of um, when I think of this, I think of OCD. I think about the kind of madness that's about ritualizing things that without that ritual, without touching this stone and moving this thing and touching my head three times when I walk through the door, every time, if I don't do that, terrible things uh, are going to happen. And in our case, something awesome might not happen. All right, Richard, go ahead. No, I was going to say back to what you were talking about, about whirling dervishes. Bolas talked about the an obsession with fitting in at all costs. And so say, say more about fitting in. To fit in with society uh, at 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 their own at their own uh, peril, walking into fire because they're just so impassioned and so obsessive um, that they they, they want to be they want to be part of this moment. Okay, so that is an interpretation that many of the rabbis give. I don't think it's this one. Mm-hmm. This one, Aviva Zornberg reading Rashbaum is suggesting is almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. That they're not, they're not seeking to be part of it and to fit it. And they, they, they are afraid the main event cannot happen without opening the manual to page 373, paragraph two, sentence five that says, well, we have to have fire to make the incense happen. And if that doesn't happen, the whole thing might not happen. They couldn't wait. They could not abide the tension of expectation without fulfillment. Does that make sense? Like they couldn't, yes. they couldn't stand the drama that te- they, people like this, she's saying normotic madness is about an un, an inability to hold the tension, the drama, the, bigness of the moment and it focuses down on the minutia of the system and it is that only that can be trusted to make anything happen that that is its own kind of madness if you will mark um well, i don't know i was just, I was just going to uh, um this is probably irrelevant to everybody but what bolus is talking about is essentially uh, a symptom of, of an obsessive compulsion. A what? What Bolas is talking about is essentially a characterological extension of an obsessive compulsive yeah. neurosis. And I think I would read what Zornberg said here as a way of making a connection 
between those those dynamics, that defense against affect, and the uh, totemic meal, the totemic ritual that's occurring here. Well, they become the they become the ritual meal. All right. Well, right. I mean well, that not 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 really. I think I, I I'm not sure that I that I would that I think that they become the ritual meal, but they become what happens if the ritual is not carried out correctly. And and so their their excessive involvement in the ritual um really involves a return of the repressed, that their their defense against affect really brings on all of this anxiety and affect. Right. Right. And, and the, that's what puts them in the line of fire. Yeah. But in that sense they become the they become the meal. They're consumed along with the animal. You get too close to that business and you you become just part of it. Well, they well they are. We're not sure what's consumed, but they are. They're dead. All right. So let's so that's that's one. So that's one interpretation that they are so wedded to you know the ritual and what and what has to be followed precisely that they can't wait. And so they try to fix it. They try to fix what might be wrong. They bring a regular fire, and that was. Their mistake because they were Moshe was praying for the divine fire. And when that divine fire came, they were busy dealing with this fire from their stove to try to make the water. And they get accidentally, you know, um, obliterated in the process. Is, is this sort of another way of saying stop being involved in all the minutiae and pay attention to the, what the real act that's going on here, which is the presence of God? I think that is, that is what puts them in the, harm's way is an obsession with the details Mm -hmm. and i definitely think if you were to sit zornberg down and say so what do you you know what where do we go with this this? i mean i think for sure it would be if you're only concerned with the forms and not the meaning yeah you know what i mean like our god doesn't really it's not a cannibalistic god doesn't want to eat people correct hopefully correct not really right. So the fire's gone out and there's nothing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, and especially for the priestly author, according to Israel Knoll, um, holiness code gets put in here, which has different language. If you take that out and just look at priestly language from Genesis through, through the end of numbers, Israel Knoll argues in sanctuary of silence that it is never ever anthropomorphized at all. He's God is only like energy is only like the fire goes out and there's nothing God can do about it. Cause God isn't a thinking being God is that which erupts when certain things are done and it was done correctly. So God erupts and they're in the way, right? That's P. So P has no anthropomorphizing of God at all. Bichlal ever. Okay. Well, that's one way. To look at it. I'm not giving you different explanations that uh, to go through the whole catalog. I'm going through explanations because I've just never heard it focused on before about the incense, right? And, and the incense and, and bringing this fire and the incense and the kind of the point of that. I've heard this fire that, you know, they weren't instructed. This is different. So this guy has another take on this incense business, not on their motivation in terms of, you know, Thinking they're all that, but in a way, sort of. Whenever, wherever there is an act of, of divine revelation, usually through fire, think of Sinai, right? Fire. There is a need for a cover 
to prevent humans from experiencing direct contact with the presence of God. Where does that usually come from, right? So there's different ways. But remember, it's filled with smoke, the incense smoke, the cloud. Like there's stuff that to mitigate between humans and the divine fire that's got God's kavod uh, in it. Nadav and Avihu are worried that there will be direct contact between man and God. If the divine presence is being revealed and fire is falling down from the heavens onto the altar, the incense has to be quickly offered up in order to block that revelation from the people. The eighth day is a continuation of the revelation at Mount Sinai, meaning it's for all the people, but Nadav and Avihu do not know this. They reason that only the spiritual elite are privileged on this day to divine revelation. Remember when I asked who's y'all? It's to this interpretation that when God says to the elders and to, and to Moshe and his, and Aaron and his kids, do this, 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 and this so that I will appear alechem to y'all. Who's y'all becomes a critical question. If Nadav and Avi, you understand that to mean just the folks that just got called and given the instructions. Then they're trying to protect the people and God going, uh-oh, if it's only us that's supposed to have this, we better make sure we offer incense up quickly because the fire of God's going to come down on the altar and then contact between man and God is going to be really bad. However, on this special day, the rules of covering and uncovering do not apply because it's the eighth day, this incredibly special day. Just as the nation was allowed to see God's presence at Mount Sinai, and perhaps as we stated, Nadav and Avihu did not know this was the case at Sinai either, because they were, they went further up. So too, on the eighth day, all of the nation is allowed to see the revelation of the divine presence. The same fire of God that descends and consumes the sacrifices on the altar continues to consume the priests that are trying to cover up and screen this fire from the nation. What is it that God meant? Through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain glory before all the people. Granted that through those close to me, says God, I am made holy. The priests who have the honor of being close to God do indeed make God holy. However, and gain glory before all the people, meaning that God also gains glory in this case through the people. Throughout the whole Pasha. The language of glory appears as the revelation of the glory of God and here too, before all of the people, not only those who are close to God. In that way, will the glory of God be revealed? You see what's happening? He's playing on that part that says, I will be made, you know, holy through those close to me and be sanctified before all the people. He's saying that's an important piece of it. That's what, that's the corrective. Nadav and Avihu thought, No, it's just for us. So they were trying to screen God's presence from the people. And that was their mistake because, because it was for everybody that that's what that enigmatic sentence means. My, my glory needs to be seen by all the people for it to be um, fulfilling. Not to have an idea you come to worship God in the Mishkan with an elitist perspective that gives the priest a special status and does not allow the simple Jew to draw near to the presence of God. God requests that God's divine presence be bestowed in a different manner before all of the nation, the great as well as the small priests and Israelites together through that. I will gain glory is what he is suggesting is meant by that enigmatic statement. What?
<laughs> no, no. What, what's so interesting to me, at least, about the Zornberg interpretation? So I always thought of it as, um, you know, God's kind of angry that these upstarts, you know, type of thing. That that's the part you didn't want to talk about. But um, <laughs> but it, but her interpretation is almost like this is a these guys are new to the system. This is a very complicated piece of machinery. God's not angry. They're just don't know how to operate you know like they're they're just they're just uh it, it's it's a dangerous device. 21 year old stupid kids bragging 21 year old, so yeah so that in the fact that they're youthful it's like it's like they're just not they're just not operating the system properly and that's they're it's nobody's angry at anyone they just it's correct it's a very complicated thing and they screw up they say yeah burning bush is the same thing how that is in the bush the space between Humanity, Moses, and God. The point we're making about energy. God's energy is... In- okay, as fire. Right. Okay. Um, all right, so along those lines, I won't. we won't read it. You can read it at home. But along those lines, that it's not just for the elite, there's this wonderful commentary on the ingredients of the incense. So I gave you the Exodus uh, Pasuk that has the ingredients of the incense. One of those is called galbanum which apparently stinks really badly. So in the incense is a component that stinks. And so Rabbi Shmuel Rabinowitz was writing, and I just thought this was great because in this whole incense fire thing that I was thinking about this week and the cause of all this, you know, he's saying that, you know, a lot of the things that we do wrong, you know, come out of loneliness and disconnection. That's really where a lot of human behaviors that are not good come from. Um, and he said, so the whole message of the Ketoret, of the, of the drawing, you know, of what the Ketoret is supposed to do is that it's supposed to represent that everybody has to be included. Everybody, even that which we think stinks, has to be included for the Ketoret to be effective. Um, all the people have to be there. All of us have to come together. Everyone is welcome in the sanctuary. And in this case, I'm not saying people different from us. I'm saying people we want to judge as you don't belong here. Because we read your name in the paper. Okay? Really? Let's be really careful, you know, about who we say, right, doesn't belong and isn't suited. Um, and so he he brings this wonderful quote. And and he goes to Likute Sihot, goes to this, this piece by the Rebbe, Schneerson, um, who talks about the difference between korbanot, sacrifices, and ketoret, incense, which is this beautiful uh, teaching about one is about drawing close. Ketoret is about binding. So there's a difference between drawing close and leaving some space and binding, which is what they were trying to do. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. That there's, that there's a very important difference. Now for Robert Gorin, this is for Robert Gorin. Ready, Robert? Scuba diving after tragedy, Robert Gorin. So, um, and so this is talking about Aaron's silence, right? Um, a- after the death of the uh, two boys, as it teaches in the Zohar, what is Ketoret? It is the Ketira, the binding, the connection of everything. They tried to erase the boundaries between the human creation and the divine, um, right? They wanted to come close to God. They were warned, right? That the stepping forward was not commanded and they went too deep. Robert knows something about this, all y'all who are scuba divers. They went too deep without wearing protective gear. And when that happens, you know, they needed a garment to mediate their discoveries before the supernal light. Like they, you know, that they're, you have to have 
protective gear in order to go that deep or to be exposed to right something um, that profound. Otherwise, everything flows too much and their hearts essentially falter. Uh, we must properly affix our regulator made of toilet before our dive to safely slip into the mid-yield as we journey into the highest realms. Okay, so that was that was for you, Robert. All right. All right. I do want to close with this poem from Yael Levy. Shmini, the eighth day, your last text. Moses spoke to the people. Today, the infinite one will appear. See, I fixed this, Bert, and it's not fixed here. So I, there must be an aversion that didn't get right saved or something. Oh, it's fixed on the paper. Okay, good. No, it isn't. Moses spoke to the people. Today, the infinite one will appear to you. Our ancestors brought offerings of calves and goats, lambs and oxen, rams, incense and oil. They drew close and stood together before the one. Aaron and his sons took these offerings and laid them upon the altar. The fires rose, the flames swirled, the altar was engulfed by heat and smoke. All day, the offerings smoldered, fat sizzled, blood was dashed upon the altar. The flames kept rising, and everything that was brought to the altar was consumed. After some time, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And the presence of the one appeared to all. A consuming fire came forth and the people fell on their faces in awe. Out of this moment, Aaron's sons Nadav and Avihu stepped forward. They placed incense on their fire pans and offered Esh Zarah, a strange fire. Then a consuming fire came forth and Nadav and Avihu died in the presence of the one. We do not know the meaning of strange fire or if Nadav and Avihu were being punished or blessed by the consuming flames. And we ask, what do we do when faced with mystery, when faced with what we can never understand? What do we do when faced with catastrophe, when even the best intentions and heartfelt actions bring forth results that leave us trembling and afraid? There is no easy answer. No sure way through. There is, though, the power of presence. Let us remember to draw close to each other and make an offering of our presence with words, with a touch, with silence, with a glance. Let our presence appear. Let our presence go forth. Let our presence to each other be sturdy and strong. Let our presence be an offering in the face of mystery and a bomb for the consuming fires of pain, devastation, hardship, and fear. Amen, amen, amen. The beautiful poem by Rabbi Yael Levy. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.